Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily, the show which doesn't care less whether you're working from home or the office as long as you can listen to podcasts while you're doing it. My name is Ian Dunt, I'm the editor of politics.co.uk and the author of How to Be a Liberal and I'm joined today by Raphael Bayer, Guardian columnist and host of the Politics on the Couch podcast. Which Hello. Is how yeah. Oh, you're already saying hello. I was still, yeah, sorry, you know, I was there. Carry on. starting to sing your praises and yet you decided to cut me off, isn't it? No, no, just you, you go nuts, you know, fill a few <laughs> minutes with shameless flattery. I'm completely relaxed about that. Well, anyway, the podcast looks at how our minds respond to politics and what politics does to our minds. Raph, we generally take quite a dim view of people starting podcasts because we despise competition. But um, in your case, we're obviously extremely supportive. Um, what prompted you to start it up? Uh, lockdown, essentially, um, <laughs> uh, being trapped at home and and not just you know, trying to avoid uh, the horrible virus, but also because I'd been uh, had some uh, horrible other health issues mm-hmm. uh, related to sort of cardiology, um, and so I really was removing myself from society a bit, uh, and that gave me an opportunity uh, with a friend to just think a little bit about take a bit of distance from politics. Uh, and also it was a weird time when we were writing the column, uh, trying to write about politics, which itself had gone into this, remember that strange state of suspended animation at the beginning yeah. of, of the lockdown. And so we played around with the podcast and we enjoyed it. So uh, if people listen to it and enjoy it, uh, which so far they seem to be doing, we'll carry on doing it as long as it's fun. It does, I mean, it does intuitively make sense to think about psychology and politics. We have, like on Romaniacs and the Bunker, like very frequently – during the political analysis of, you know, why did this guy say that, whether it's an MP or a commentator, whether it's about Brexit or coronavirus or whatever, it's quite frequent that you just give up on the political analysis and just find yourself sort of degenerating into a psychological analysis of what- We like to see it more as escalating than degenerating. No, I absolutely agree. And this is one of the, one of the things that, that really stood out uh, early on, as we, you know, or, or that we talked about a lot was in that how in recent years we'd found exactly that, that particularly in the context of Brexit, actually, uh, that it wasn't really useful anymore to try and analyze motive in terms of a policy outcome. And you found yourself increasingly talking about things like cognitive dissonance or sort of mm. what is the psychological ladder that will allow this person to climb down from a certain position with their pride <laughs> intact? Or mm. why is this person who's invested so much in this candidate finding it so difficult to see what aspect of that proposition is completely lunatic or is never going to work? And you're, 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 you, I think that that's partly because there's been a lot of literature around this recently. So we've all become much more literate uh, in talking about cognitive biases and availability heuristics uh, and all these sort of uh, technical terms that help us navigate why we make bad judgments or bad choices. And that's all been massively accelerated by the algorithms on the internet, Twitter, that sort of forces us into these weird sort of cognitive states. So we've just become better at understanding that process and then seeing how it plays out in politics. So it kind of made sense to go... Well, instead of just writing that column every week, why don't I sort of carve that out and do a podcast about it? There was uh, someone once told me sort of in the heart of the Brexit campaign that there was a, a, a sort of psychological test to do with how someone feels when they're with a group of people and someone new enters the room. And that some people feel, you know, oh, great, here's a new person to speak to. And other people feel a sense of threat and anxiety about how that would affect the dynamic. And it was suggested to me that those two personality types map relatively cleanly onto the sort of more liberal, open-minded, you know, remain side for those who welcome the new person in the room. 
um, and onto the sort of Brexity, sort of more, you know, reactionary, rose-tinted spectacles about the past conservative side for those who are anxious about the person coming into the room. Have you read, does that ring true with you or is that just a massive simplification? Uh, 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 to be honest, the way you've described it just there doesn't ring entirely true, but I do, uh, it's ringing a bell in terms of an analysis, I think, and this might be wrong, I, I've seen something similar, not related to Brexit, but just in terms of uh the sort of inward and outward looking personality types and how like more likely they are to be conservative and liberal. I think it's in Jonathan Haidt's book, but I might be wrong about that. And it's certainly the case, I think, that, you know, people who have alike temperaments will gravitate towards each other and, and end up finding alike political positions that might not necessarily they might speak more to the personality and mood or even upbringing background than to what they like to think are rational analyses of the best policy option in any one given situation. I mean, there was some analysis with that with figures like Trump. I forget her name, the um, the academic who was talking about a type of psychological profile that is extremely receptive to uh, rhetoric around emergency. And, you know, once a sort of a nationalist figure can can claim there's a credible emergency, they'll be willing to countenance all sorts of quite extreme policy measures that they otherwise wouldn't have been. They essentially go from a conservative to a nationalist on, on an emergency trigger. Is there a danger, though, that we're that we kind of over overdo the psychology or is it or is it the opposite that we spent the whole time not assessing psychology enough and actually lots of the values and political distinctions that we think of are actually fundamentally psychological? I think you can't escape the psychology. I certainly think that there's a, a relatively good evidence uh, on the first point you made there that uh, if you can make people afraid, you activate that part of their brain, you know, sort of the amygdala, the fight or flight uh, adrenaline mm. response uh, that makes it much harder to form dispassionate analytical judgments. And so you you prioritize all sorts of emotional responses, uh, the need for protection, the need for security, uh, that might you know that that I mean for example you don't think probabilistically you don't think actually how really likely is it that I'm going to be the victim of a terrorist attack answer really not very likely at all you just think ah the place is crawling with terrorists and they're all coming <laughs> to get me and you it's pretty easy to see how that that supports uh, a nationalist proposition uh, whereas and that makes it harder for liberals to get purchase on the argument I, I would be a bit wary of of getting too stuck into the the sort of psychological mode of analysing everything. Because actually, first of all, a lot of people are just in politics because they genuinely think that there's something that needs doing to improve people's lives and they have good motives and they're trying to advocate a position. Uh, and if you overanalyze the psychology of it, you end up coming out with this very jaundiced view that people mm-hmm. are this sort of, uh, this almost sort of cod Darwinian view that we're all savages fighting out over the, the bones of the same carcass and, and it, there's no actual moral hierarchy in it at all. Do you see what I mean? And I don't, I still would definitely resist that view. Maybe it's true, but I just would resist it because it's emotionally so appalling. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you make? I mean, there was this weird period where, you know, in fact, it, it almost felt like a relay race, the Brexit to COVID um, kind of media coverage. It was just like it, we'd had just Brexit for, you know, four years. And then there was January, February, and then suddenly it's like, well, now it's just COVID forever. In terms of sort of people's tribes, it, it felt quite odd, didn't it? Because the cut, even though right now I accept that most of the sort of COVID skeptics and the anti-maskers and things are usually quite Brexity. But I, I found like sort of around the people that I knew, people's psychological response 
didn't seem to tally that closely with their sort of Brexit positions and their more open closed and all of that sort of stuff, that actually pe- people didn't fall down in terms of re- resenting government policy on, on the lockdown or in terms of wariness of COVID and not going out. They didn't fall down in predictable patterns. It seemed to be quite sort of, um, it was very hard to guess which way they would go. I think it, it, in my mind, it's sort of divided into phases. Uh, it, I mean, if you sort of exclude that weird bit in January where uh, the election was over and there were an awful lot of people who think, good, we never have to talk about Brexit again. Uh, but the sort of COVID thing hadn't hit yet. So there was that that sort of limbo period. Then there was uh, uh, that moment early on where you you revealed, I think, a very pent up appetite for solidarity, which yeah. coincided with yeah. the arrival of, of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and interestingly, by extraordinary coincidence, also the anniversary of VE Day, which gave everyone a great cultural sort of apparatus to climb onto and say, yes, we, we do solidarity and we go onto our doorsteps and we clap for the NHS. So that blurred a lot of partisan divisions. And then within that, you also had the fact that the prime minister ended up in intensive care. And although there you know, some hyper-partisan people will not have been at all moved by that, I think an awful lot of people just at some level respond to that you know, on a human mm-hmm. uh, level rather than the political one. And then the moment that phase ended, I think you can peg quite distinctly to the Cummings affair in Barnard Castle. And that was the point at which it all really unraveled. And you saw quite clearly um, the the reassertion of a much more, for want of a better word, sort of normal or at least <clears throat> familiar partisan politics. And actually, just the last mention of the other podcast, uh, the one that I do, we did, had an episode on this, which was very interesting, where we looked at some research that showed pretty much exactly that and how suddenly and quite quickly this this blurred mulch of opinion that hadn't been easily delineated by conventional partisan loyalties re sort of separated itself out onto exactly the familiar tribal lines and and people sort of ended up going up to their shelf and drawing down their usual political positions simply because they'd run out of ways to think about a really complicated position. I mean, that seems a bit mm-hmm. harsh, but that, that was broadly seems to be what happened. And now actually it is a, a little bit more uh, conventional and partisan, certainly than it was in March or April. The last week has been particularly sort of brutal, really, with the government. And we've seen a pattern in their response to crises, which seems to be to put the blame on sort of institutions um, regulators or the civil service. I mean, most recently we've seen that with Jonathan Slater, the permanent secretary at the Department of Education, who's been sacked over the A-level um, results. Can you walk us through, I mean, first of all, can you actually tell people what is a permanent secretary? Because I have a feeling it's one of those words that, that people switch off and fall asleep to, quite right. Well, yeah, essentially it is the most, it's the highest you can climb up the civil service hierarchy within one department. Uh, and the crucial thing, therefore, it is the most senior official who therefore has enormous as it were sort of managerial uh responsibility but uh, at the limit of being able to take any partisan political position because we have a, a notionally neutral and, and apolitical civil service uh so it, it's it's a very important position essentially in that this person has to be able to take huge responsibility for the delivery of a government agenda but should in theory also apply the same level of diligence and seriousness and responsibility regardless of who is in government and and it's you know that's you can see how that it's not hard to see how that becomes difficult and problematic in it in any circumstances but especially when you have very ideological government 
How common is it for them to take the flak historically? I mean, did this happen under Thatcher, under Blair? Not common. Um, in terms of you have a, a crisis, uh, a political crisis or scandal, and there's a lot of heat on the Secretary of State, as there has been on Gavin Williamson, uh, and then some of that heat is, is radiating upwards to the Prime Minister and people saying, well, what's he been doing about it uh, over the exams, uh, the grading fiasco mm-hmm. and all the other stuff. And then within weeks for it to essentially be declared that the permanent secretary is going to have to go. Uh, I, I certainly can't recall that happening in that sequence. I mean, there, there might be previously, obviously people will have been frustrated with their permanent secretaries and there will have been talk about um, sort of trying to find other roles for people uh, discreetly. But no, this is what, what's happening now uh, and remember, this is just one of a number of permanent secretaries. You know, the Foreign Office, um, Home Office. You know, it, it, it's it's there's a there's a been a sort of a a year of the long knives, uh, and it's been very explicitly declared by uh, by sources close to Dom, Dominic Cummings, called Dominic Cummings, um, who um, saying you know, I think the phrase is you know hard rain's going to fall on the civil service. I mean, the, the, the perception is, uh, and his you know well known doctrine is that the the civil service machinery is an impediment to progress, as he would see it, holds things back. And these people can't be trusted because they belong essentially to a sort of Remain-loving cultural establishment that cannot be trusted to handle the revolution that he wants to pursue, broadly speaking. Is that what, I mean, ultimately, is that what it, is it a strategic assault on the civil service or just that more basic kind of day-to-day, just divert the blame. They can't really answer back. No one really knows who the fuck they are. So just just chuck them on the fire thing. Or I guess it's like a bit of both. Yeah, it's, 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 it's certainly a bit of both, isn't it? I mean, uh, at, at one level, they need, it's, it's a good opportunity to to do something, to sort of dispatch a bullet into the back of the head of uh, someone who's against your revolution that you might want to dispatch anyway. Uh, so it's sort of, yeah, that deals with with two problems in one. Um, also, I just think there is a feeling that the, the prime minister himself you know, doesn't want, he wouldn't want to get rid of Gavin Williamson. Um, and now that which is in itself is revealing in a number of ways. First, uh, it, it's clear that it means he values total loyalty over competence because it's, I think it's, hmm. it's not even a partisan point anymore to say that Gavin Williamson is useless as a secretary of state. I mean, he obviously can't do that job. It's not that it's not as if the need to publish exam grades or open schools in September was an unexpected event. I mean, autumn has been in the calendar forever. It's not, you know, do you know what I mean? It's not, you know, you to be taken by surprise by something predictable is bad enough but to be taken by surprise by something that's literally in the written in the diary <laughs> printed in the diary every year that's not that just means you can't do that job uh, and but so, so and yet johnson has has kept him now there is one view that he's done that partly because he's going to have to you know there's more blame to be soaked up you know so you might as well use gavin williamson as your trouble sponge for a few more um months you know because there's going to be loads more more turbulence and difficulty around the schools uh, before you and then and then you finally throw him out when he's fully saturated with um shit basically uh that's a really unpleasant image uh and yeah, yet i'm here. swearing I'm not, now I'm in, because you swear that. too much on podcasts and now it's contagious and so now i'm gonna do it so i'm gonna try and stop that but anyway the um 
<laughs> what was I saying? Yes, Gavin Williamson uh, and and the sponge. Um, but the other important thing that I think what this reveals, which is more profound, is that w- Williamson's doing that job because he's he, you know he will believe what it is necessary to believe and say what it is necessary to say to support the Johnson proposition. And what happens when you have a, a very very ideological regime like that is. Almost by definition, you have to end up promoting mediocrity because the people who are capable of independent thought or who have their own sort of principle, their own compass for measuring principles uh, will either dissent or get frustrated. So they'll either leave or you'll have to purge them because Mm. they won't agree with you. And so automatically, and you saw it's just what happened sort of over the decades in regimes like the Soviet Union, you know, where eventually the people who were prepared to toe the party line became simultaneously you, you selected for two qualities, which are stupidity and thuggery, because mm. those were the qualities that were required to just carry on saying literally anything and believing literally anything to be loyal to the proposition. And if you have a very, very strong ideological view of the world, you must reject evidence that contradicts it and try and bend evidence to prove what you already believe. And that's, I think, what we're seeing now and why you've got this cabinet full of people who Broadly speaking, the the, the the salient traits are a bit stupid and quite thuggish in the way they respond to people. I, I'd make an exception for the chancellor there; that's a different story. But for a lot of them, that's basically that, that that's 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 the recruitment criteria for joining Boris Johnson's cabinet. Sadly, the temptation is to lump together these various sort of institutional attacks, right? So to put the civil service attack together with, you know, sort of Ofqual on Public Health England and to put that together with the Home Office's attack on activist lawyers and, you know, left-wing lawyers, in other words, you know, lawyers that are doing their job, um, as a general attack on any kind of institutional scrutiny or restraint of the executive. Is that right? Or is there something qualitatively different about the attack on the civil service? It does seem to be the thing that Cummings, in, through whatever medium, wants to talk about the most. Yeah, they're obviously related uh, to the extent that you know there is this broad brush view that the whole of British, the whole of British, the British state, the whole of British society uh, has sort of stagnated and failed in some way, and, and the whole thing is shaking up. That is that is core to the sort of the, the Cummings world view. Uh, I think in the case of the civil service, there is probably. A, a more immediate and pressing, and and to an extent legitimate frustration that they had to do something really difficult, which was manage a pandemic, and it hasn't worked. Uh, and so there will be some actual panic about the structures. Uh, you know, so if you're, I mean, the uh, the, the Blair government, they used to um, talk about this problem called, you know, rubber levers, where, you know, you pull on the lever, expecting something to happen, and then nothing happens. And you think, well, <laughs> hang on, these levers are, are made of rubber, then they just bend in my hands, what's going on? Uh, and, 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 the, the, and, and Blair dealt with that basically by setting up a delivery unit inside number 10 uh, and and really driving to and, and using targets to to drive a, a prime ministerial agenda through it's a frustration that lots of people have felt in government that's not new to this government uh, i think that the difference is now this willingness to really sort of spill blood all over the carpets and also the, uh, i think a crucial difference between this government and the, and the blair one when they encounter this problem is that actually, although there was a bit of uncertainty in sort of 97, 98, fairly quickly, the sort of Blair government had a pretty clear idea of what it actually wanted to do. Mm. And I think that with Johnson, he doesn't really have that. He wants to be prime minister and then he needed to get Brexit done. He obviously wasn't expecting a pandemic. And so 
it's a sort of the, the wheels of the revolution are spinning uh, and you have all the sorts of the ethical drivers of, sort of the, 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 the moral codes of revolution, you know, the ends justifies the means, the sort of Bolshevik attitude to getting things done. But what they actually want to get done isn't at all clear. So it's sort of the wheels are sort of spinning frictionlessly without any actual content. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because it's quite hard to discern. You hear a lot about Cummings wants to, you know, burn down the civil service. I don't really get, and I haven't really read anything that tells me what it is he specifically wants to sort of replace it with. There's this sort of vague kind of Thomas Carlyle, great men of history, but translated into modern kind of weirdo genius idea sort of lurking in the background. But beyond that, it it doesn't seem clear to me at all what is supposed to go in in place of the existing system. Yeah, it's very revealing. uh, And this isn't my point. This is a point that was made to me by someone who had worked in government, um, which I'm stealing, but I can't name him. So uh, (laughs) sorry if you're listening. I'm going to steal your point. Um, When you actually look at the Reed Cummings' blog, what you notice is all the examples he uses, a lot of it's military, and it's all good. Here was this great general who did this extremely heroic decision, uh, or here was this, um, or, in, or in some cases, it's you know, here's this one-off, the slightly dysfunctional maths genius who had this great insight that no one else had had. Um, so, and none of it's about government, <laughs> you know. So, if you go through life uh, thinking, when I get to into government, I'm going to make decisions, I'm going to organise it. Uh, in the perfect way to win the Battle of the Bulge or whatever the mm. hell it is that he's using as his model. What you'll find is it's a really, really bad model for, the, you know, a lot of government is really about keeping things ticking over or delivering things in the way that you have sufficient consent from everyone that that, that they, they play along. So well, what's interesting is that actually the ethos, and, you know, you get this, you know, it, when you try and interrogate what the plan is for Brexit and, uh, and where you get, you know, you see this, discuss, this discussion of an idea that the, the future of British industry is things that haven't been invented yet. Uh, I mean, it's all going to be AI and, and uh, industries that are, you know, we mortals like you and me haven't really imagined, but by escaping from Brussels jurisdiction, we will be able to subsidize these industries, develop them and become world leaders in them. And those sclerotic Europeans with their rubbish 20th century analog statecraft won't be able to keep up. And it's quite an interesting theory. It's not completely unrealistic at some level, but the problem is, again, it's contentless. Like, well, well, what are these industries of the future, but that by definition don't exist yet. So that it's, these two things are connected. It's this idea that you, you, you can, you know, what you need to do is remove the obstacles to progress. You just burn everything down and a phoenix will rise from the ashes, but you don't mm-hmm. really know what, what the phoenix is. You're just having some confidence that you're smart enough. You'll be smart enough to see it, to recognize it when you see it. I think uh, or I, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if sometime by next spring, uh, Cummings realises that the, the flames are too big and hot and there's no phoenix and he finds a way to walk away from this because it, it's, as I say, you know, it's a mixed metaphor. You know, He's not a complete idiot and he must realise that the emperor doesn't actually have any clothes or that that realisation should be coming to him pretty soon, I would have thought. He bears comparison sort of with Trump. In, and I think in quite a revealing way, whereas I think when people compare sort of Trump and Johnson, it's it's actually not very revealing. Um, but with Cummings, it sort of is, because Cummings is obviously far more intelligent um, 
than, than he is and far better read. I mean, there's no comparison in that sense. And yet behind it all, that there is this sort of idea, both that fundamentally solutions can be quite simple to complex problems. And, you know, this other institutions just by their nature will cock it up because they overcomplicate it. And a background assumption of sort of the triumph of the will without the, you know, the, the things that necessarily evokes. Which is oh, some idea of the things like, that necessarily evokes, in fact, <laughs> many of the things in the American case. But sorry, carry on. Yeah, well, no, yeah, exactly. But and just if I just believe hard enough and, you know, if common sense just is, believes in itself hard enough, then all of these obstacles will, will just sort of fall away. Yeah, I think with the Trump thing, I'm increasingly of the view that the the intellectual rationalization of how Trump got elected um, that was very common in 2016, 17 into 18 a bit. Uh, and this idea that you needed to, um, yeah, that the, the people um, took him literally and not seriously, that actually there was something more profound going on here. And he wasn't just a sort of a racist maniac, um, <laughs> that there was method in the madness. Uh, I, that seems to me pretty debunked now. And, and mm-hmm. what actually happened, I think I find it much more useful to, to think of the Trump presidency in terms of a kind of almost like a sort of developing world kleptocracy, uh, but mm-hmm. where the method by which corrupt people seized power, uh, they didn't, couldn't use sort of tanks and guns. So they, they did ride a kind of pseudo intellectual idea. I mean, you look at someone like Bannon, right? A lot of people took his ideas very seriously. And, you know, people like there's quite a lot of overlap in the analysis between a Steve Bannon position and the one that someone like Nick Timothy uh, was channeling Mm -hmm. into speeches for Theresa May about, you know, there's this sort of organic, earthy people and they are the reaction against, you know, uh, cosmopolitan globalists who have lost touch with what it means to be rooted in place. And there are all sorts of people who, and it's not a it's not a wildly wrong analysis of what made people vote for Brexit, what made people vote mm-hmm. for Trump. But what it actually was, particularly in the case of, of the US and possibly in the case of Brexit in this country, was just a, a, a very clever bit of, as I say, cod intellectual camouflage for a massive power grab and ultimately corruption, you know, kleptocracy. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, it will be interesting to see whether the, the sort of the UK iteration of that which i think is more sophisticated and complicated unravels in the way that the american one seems to be they're very different countries and histories and cultures and constitutions obviously the 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 comparison can be too glib i think yeah yeah um finally psychologically (laughs) maybe you think i'm talking about coming too much but it seems you know if if we're dealing with this sort of aspect of it he does seem to be the 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 only sort of part of intellectual substance such as it is to deal with with the government i mean psychologically does, does it there's a temptation to think that he's trying, he's sort of reenacting his own life in his, in the policy agenda of, you know, doesn't, institutions didn't like him. He's this sort of quite weird, but quite effective sort of loner, isn't really enjoyed and then tries to create a system where loner weirdos get to take over everything and smash up the system. That may itself be quite a glib sort of pop psychology assessment. Do you think there's anything in it or do you think that? Uh, I think it's definitely something that's worth. I mean, my colleague uh, and friend, the brilliant Marina Hyde had a line about this in one of her columns where she said, you know, basically we're all paying the price for the fact that uh, a girl once laughed at Dominic Cummings' <laughs> 16 poetry. Uh, 
uh, <laughs> it's kind of that. that I, I hate to, you know, it, it, it's obviously more complicated than that, but you can't help thinking there's an awful lot of truth in that. And on your first point, I completely agree. I really have for a long time resisted the idea that we can get too bogged down in talking about the advisors. Ultimately, it's the leaders that choose the advisors. You know, when when Jeremy Corbyn was leading the Labour Party, I didn't want to get drawn into criticising Seamus Mill, although Seamus was very, very influential in that because ultimately it was the Corbyn project. Uh, Alistair Campbell and Tony Blair, even when uh, David Cameron's you know, pressed spokesman ended up going to jail um, over phone hacking, I thought there was a, an import, it was important to distinguish who was really in charge and had really been in charge in number 10. But that said, I think for the reason you say about where is any kind of intellectual coherence coming from or they explain some of the decisions that's going on increasingly you just have to think we are living in a dominic cummings government Uh, and some of the things that were said about alistair campbell or some of these other eminence grees which were overstated Mm. uh, i'm increasingly i increasingly feel are are justified in this case thank you very much for coming on where can people find your podcast that's a good question. On any podcast reader, any whatever your normal podcast provider is, they will find it. Politics on the couch. Uh, um, Are they called or, podcast readers? Is that a thing? Podcast users. I that would sound like a sort of wow. judge now. Like, what is a lunchbox? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you fire up your gramophone and ask it for podcast reader. I wish I. I'm sorry. The, can we so you not put a link in the show notes for this podcast? And then that <laughs> problem is solved. But when we tweet it out, well, you know, just yeah, Google it. We will, put, we will put a link in for the <laughs> words you. that should have emerged from your mouth. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Cheers, mate. It's a pleasure. Okay, that's your lot. Bunker Dailies come out on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday and there's a full-length show on Wednesday. See you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ian Dunt. It was produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Thank you.